If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Hebrews. Um, That shouldn't be stated any longer. I'm sure you guys have figured that out by now. Um, We're in chapter 10 this morning. We'll cover the first 18 verses. Uh, What a a great chapter that we're going to dive into. Um, And uh, like I said, I think a couple weeks ago, it's it's an easy easy book to to go through. Um, I want you to kind of just imagine for a moment. Imagine you're a student. Some of you might be easier than others. Uh, Imagine you're a student. And any time that your parents received a phone call or an email from your, the teacher, it was because it was a negative thing to say. You, your child didn't do this or your child did do this. Imagine as an employee, this might be more relatable for some, that any time you heard from your manager or those pesky HR people, it was to tell you that you did something wrong. Imagine, as a spouse, that the only meaningful and long conversations you've had with your significant other is because you're disagreeing about something, or you're upset about something. And imagine going to a church where, where all the pastor and all the teachers, all they ever did was just talk about how horrible of an individual you are because you're just rooted in sin, but they didn't offer any hope. Generally speaking, that's just not a fun place to be. It, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a bummer, as, as the kids used to say. It's toxic, it's negative, it's unfortunate. Nobody likes to be in a negative environment. At least most people don't. But I think negative feedback is important. I think most of us would agree with that. But I think positive feedback also needs to be involved in that. And I think one of the things we'll see in our passage this morning and today is that once again, we'll see that the new covenant and, and the old covenant, they contrast, and, it, and it, it impacts how we worship today. So if you're a follower of Christ, you'll hopefully see some positive effects of what we've seen, and most of all, in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus. And as you said, uh, mo- over the past several weeks, we've been in, the, in the, the book of Hebrews, and we've been in this section that really takes us all the way back to chapter 8. And what we'll see in this section today, it actually kind of closes that section out. And realistically, if we go back to even chapter 7, when we're talking about the high priestly, you know, uh, of Melchizedek, we'll see that that kind of helps close out that entire section as well. And this, um, in, in, in this section, we've seen, of course, these old types, which are, are things that picture and point us to Jesus. And um, these are all types of the Old Covenant. These are activities and, and actions and, and objects and people that point us to, to Jesus. And that's what we've seen over this, uh, this entire section. And in this series, as you, you may know, because we started this series last year in the fall. In this entire series, we've seen that, that not only that Jesus represented and fulfilled the New Covenant, but he also helped us to, to see how he was even greater than, which is the title of our series, he was even greater than the high priests. He was even greater than the Levitical line of priestly order. And we've seen that he's obviously bigger and greater than the tabernacle and all the objects we see there. He's been greater, as we saw last week, to this sacrificial system that the old people were, were under. And then Jesus ushered in this new covenant. So this is what we've seen in, in doing so. We saw back in chapter 8 as he, he, he declared the old covenant as obsolete. So we're going to jump into this closing section, and I think verses 1 through 4 of this section help us to kind of summarize what we've seen a little bit. So I want to start there, then we'll kind of see what the rest of our passage talks about. So verses 1 through 4, Hebrews chapter 10, reads this way. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, who no longer has any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that's what we see in those first couple of verses, and I think it helps just to give us a nice, quick summarization of what we've seen in this entire section. I want to quickly jump in and and, uh, tackle three quick observations from this short little passage here. First one is this, that the law was a shadow, as we've seen several times already. And I think when we see the word the law, it does refer to the law itself, right? But it it also captures the entirety uh, of what we've seen in the old covenant scriptures, the, the old systems, and everything of that nature in its entirety. Well, we also see that this shadow is never the true reality of what we see in Jesus. Here's an example. Some kids like to play house. You ever play house when you were a kid? No? Me either. Some kids do, right? Some kids play house. But what happens when you find your own spouse and you get married and you have a home and you don't play house anymore? It's never any substitution and it's not the right thing. It's just something that you see as a shadow. Second thing we see here, second observation, is that if the shadow was sufficient, wouldn't have it stopped? It would have stopped, and that's what verse 2 was telling us. It would have stopped if the shadow was sufficient, but they can't have to do it over and over and over. And obviously in verse 4, he confirms that by saying the blood of bulls and goats were never enough. And then the third observation is this. Therefore, it acted as a temporary covering and a reminder of our sin. Now, a few minutes ago, we we talked about this idea, like, imagine going to a church and all you hear about is your sin. We're going to talk about sin in this church. We're going to do that. But it's not something that we're going to live in and kind of focus in on all the time. We want to make sure that you understand there's hope. We're going to talk about that sin because it helps us to see where we have our need, and it's going to help us to point us to Jesus. And it's interesting, that word reminder there is the same word that Jesus used when he talked about remembering him when he did the Lord's Supper with his apostles, with his disciples. So I think it is important for us to remember that we are sinners, but we're saved by grace. And we can't live in our sin because now we live under Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. So I want to read the rest of the the section here, verses 5 through 18, and we'll kind of see what this uh, draws out for us. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into this world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands at his daily service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the, uh, the writer quotes from the Septuagint, which might be a familiar word for some of you, but it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that's what the author and the writer of Hebrews is using when he quotes from the psalm. So he's using that to quote from Psalms uh, 46 through 8. And what he does here, I really enjoyed, and I, hopefully you guys caught it too, that he attributes this quote directly to Jesus. He, he attributes this quote directly to Jesus, and he also interprets this for us in verses 8 through 10, which I think is pretty neat too. And I think he does this for a couple reasons. Uh, first reason is this. I think he does this because, frankly, this was always plan A. There was never... You know, he didn't scratch out plan A and go to plan B or C or D. This was always plan A. Last week we talked about this, and I, I brought up the, the sacrifice of Abel. And uh, this was found back in Genesis chapter 4. There, he and his brother Cain, they made a, a, an offering to the Lord. And Abel's offering was pleasing to the Lord, while Cain's was not. Abel, he put his heart into that offering and, and what we learn from, from John in 1 John chapter 3 is that Cain's offering was evil, and his heart was evil. That's what we learn from the scriptures. So we see here that, that the plan was always to provide a body for the sacrifice that we see in verse 5. And an interesting, too, careful inspection of, of what we have in our Bibles today, Psalm 40 to what we see in Hebrews, which was the quote from the Septuagint, we'll actually see there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, so uh, I, I put it on the screen for us today, but what you'll see is that there's a um, Psalm 40, verse 6, I think it is, in, in, in our Bibles, has the term an open ear, right? There's, there's a phrase that includes open ear. And in Hebrews, the quotation in Hebrews actually talks about this idea of preparing a body. Seems very different on both ends. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce, he, he said that the, the idea of hollowing out or preparing or, or forming the inner parts of the ear actually kind of um, helps us to see this idea of fashioning a new body. So he, the, 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 essentially the translators of the Septuagint basically translated and, and helped us to see what, and, and, and actually kind of paraphrase what we see in our Bibles today. I just thought that was an interesting point. Um, and the second thing that we see here is that this was God's will. So we saw this was always plan A, but this was also God's will. And as we saw, this was always part of and always had been part of his plan. So what we saw in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension is we saw this was a, an example of his faithfulness to his Father's will. That's what we see here. And we'll see here in a few moments as well that what the Father desires from us is, is, is that as well. And that, that's really focused around this idea of submission and obedience. And we'll see that this morning. 
the writer takes us back also uh, to Jeremiah 31 with the new covenant. And here he attributes this quote to the Holy Spirit. So Psalm 40, he attributed to Jesus. The writer here says this is from the Holy Spirit. And if nothing else, what that helps us to realize and hopefully understand and confirm is that the writer of the entire scriptures is the Holy Spirit through these people. And his summary verses in verse 18, where he closes again with this affirmation of the finality of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus. So all that to go here, here's our main idea that I want to work through for the rest of our time together. Our main idea is this, the finished work of Christ perfects us and sanctifies us. The finished work of Christ perfects us and sanctifies us. And I think that it's most important probably to define these two terms real quickly. So we'll do that today as well. Perfect, we've seen this term several times already here in Hebrews. And it is a hard word for us because in English that means perfect, no blemish. There's nothing wrong with it, right? So I think it's, it's easy for us to kind of get confused by that and maybe even at times get discouraged by that because we're not perfect. But the, the term here literally means to bring to completion, and that's what it alludes to. It, may, it also may refer to something a, a, along the facts of being able to accomplish a task or accomplishing a task. And it, sometimes it also refers to people who are blameless, who has a, a, a lifestyle that is blameless before others. The writer of Hebrews uses this almost exclusively in contrast to the ceremonial cleansing that we've seen in the Old Covenant. And, in, and that implies, too, that the, that the only... Only Christ could be perfect, and only Christ can cleanse us with that sacrifice. Several weeks back, and, and uh, Pastor Pat you know, kind of uh, defined this for us as well, and I think it was a good definition that we can use again today. He says here that the, the, to put someone, that the term perfect alludes to the fact that it puts someone in the position where they can stand before God. That's how he perfects us. So the term uh, we see in this section is actually used both in verse 1 and in verse 14, and it's used all throughout the book of Hebrews. And it, it generally speaks to this idea of being made perfect. So one way of looking at that is, is if that we have been declared perfect before God, and at the same time he's still working on us. And that's kind of the idea we see here. And, and, and that cleansed blood of Jesus is what helps us to be perfect. But our status of perfect, if we've been cleansed, doesn't change. And that's what he's talking about. So here, here's another example. If somebody gets their, goes to university, they get their, their, their diploma, their degree, they finish the work. So they could be declared perfect. But no one generally, most people don't stop learning after they receive their degree. They don't just become a vegetable and they just stop learning. Most of us continue to learn as we grow and develop, even if it's within our field of study. It's perfect, it's complete, but it doesn't mean we stop learning. Second term here that we see here is sanctify. And this is very similar, but it means that, that we're being made holy. Again, holy is a hard word to comprehend for us because we're, we're, we're sinners. But this, this idea here, holiness is something that's set aside for the purpose and uses of God. That's what holy means. So in verse 10, the writer says that those who have been sanctified... And then in verse 14, he says those who have been sanctified or being sanctified. So there's, there's a couple aspects to that, that idea of sanctification. Here's an example, and, and what it is, it is an example of our, our position in Christ. 
as believers. So while we have been made right with God, we're still being matured and still being made perfect before him and still being made holy before him. There's a pastor named uh, Ray Stedman, and he says that this idea of sanctification actually may refer to this idea of, of someone being used for its intended purpose. And if you look at the context, that could work in this context, if you really think about it, because the blood of Jesus does declare one as holy before God, which makes us being used for, our, for the intended purpose. Another way of looking at this is, again, it's just more of along the lines of us becoming more like Jesus during our walk with him here on earth. Sanctifi- sanctification manifests those activities within a Christian's life cycle. And, and it, it leads to that maturity of the individual and their growth. So hopefully this helps us to better understand this idea of perfection and sanctification that goes along with our main idea. So I want to answer this question and hopefully answer this, this thought of how, right? How are we made perfect and how are we sanctified in Christ? So first thing we have to do is we need to be cleaned. And that's the reason this is uh, possible is because we are cleansed. So we've seen this before. Again, if, if, if we're going to be in the presence of God, he demands holiness. And we can't do that on our own. So only, only some, somebody has to account us and present us as holy before God. And that's, that's what the work of Jesus did for us. And it's only done through being cleansed of those sins. So to illustrate the past, present, and future aspect of that work, the author or the writer of Hebrews helps us to see that if we look at verse 14 closely. So verse 14, it says this, For by a single offering he has perfected, has perfected past, for all time, future, those who are being sanctified, present. So verse 14 gives us all three of those aspects of how we are maturing and being perfected in Jesus. And I know we've talked about this before, but I don't think we can overlook and overstate this fact. Second thing we see here is that we're able to be perfected and sanctified because Jesus sat down. Jesus sat down. Verse 12 tells us that. And this, I think, has those same implications of when God rested on the seventh day of creation. God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because the work was complete. And what did he say it was? He said it was good. He said it was good that work that he had set out to do was complete. And that's, I think, the same implications we see there. And it means, you know, for Jesus, it means that he, his completed work of redemption was completed. Once and for all, we see in our text today. And this picture is about posture. This posture of sitting is about rest. It's about completion. It, it, it illustrates again that the task is done. And if you think about the, the one who's still at work, is not resting or sitting. So think about this too, who was not sitting? The priests. The priests weren't sitting, were they? Think about all the furniture that they made for the tabernacle. You know what they didn't make? They didn't make a chair or a bench. I think John last week made a comment, oh, they made the mercy seat. Is that, is that the seat? No, <laughs> not the same thing. I don't think that applies here. They couldn't sit down. The work never finished. They couldn't sit. They couldn't rest because the work never finished over and over. 
some of you have, how many of you have worked in the restaurant business? Quite a few of us. After a big rush of customers that are coming in, whether it be at the counter or whether it be in the dining room, no one's sitting. If you're sitting, you're probably getting yelled at by somebody. No one's sitting. You're just running and running and running and running. And it's only when the work is completed, all the food's on the table, and those customers are leaving, it's only then when you have an opportunity to sit and rest. And that's a good sit. That's a good rest. It's only then that you're able to do that. So I think by Jesus sitting, it gives us confidence. And we talked about confidence a couple weeks ago. It gives us confidence that we've been forgiven. And it gives us confidence that we've been forgiven and cleansed of our sin in him. Later on in, 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 uh, in this section, verse 17, where, where the writer is quoting Jeremiah from the, the, the new covenant in, in chapter 31 of his, uh, his prophecy, it says that, he, he, that God will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. So, of course, this doesn't mean that God forgot. Hey, God, you remember that one sin I did when I was 13? No. No, I don't. Of course, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean he forgot. But what that means, which is an interesting concept for us, again, what that means is that he is no longer identifying us by our sin, but he's identifying us as a disciple, as a follower, as a child of God. And there's that finality we see once again because of the work of Jesus. So what do we do with this information? What do we do now as we progress in our walk and as we mature in Christ? First thing we need to make sure we're doing is being obedient. We need to be obedient. So we spoke a little bit earlier about this idea of growth in the life cycle of a Christian. And it has to include obedience, maturity. And, and I think what we could say is that the Christian growth the, the growth cycle of a Christian individual, one who identifies as a Christian, there should include maturity. And there should be something, in, and I think this is an evidence, right? If somebody is growing in Christ, that's an evidence of their salvation um, and of that Christian life that they claim to have. And obedience comes from a changed heart. Obedience comes from a changed heart. There must be change in your life if you're effectively following the Lord. And obedience can't save you, which is what we've seen again over and over again in this, in this passage and in, in this text. But we are obedient because we are saved. It's a response to what God's work has already done. Second thing I would say is this, we need to check our motives. And this is a tricky one because every single week, Pastor Pat and I are saying, you need to read your Bible every day, you need to pray every day. And you need to come to worship every week. We tell you that because it is important. But here's what I would argue and say is that it's not about what we do, but it's about why we do it. Right? So the, this, um, the, the, this, uh, the reference that we see in, in Psalm 40 kind of teaches us that lesson a little bit, doesn't it? The issue wasn't the sacrifice itself. It was rather having trust in that sacrifice versus having trust in the Lord to forgive us of those sins. So if you read your Bible every day, if you pray every day, if you go to every Bible study there ever was, if you listen to every Christian podcaster there ever was, if you read every single book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if we do that so we can be right with God, and if we believe that's going to make us right with God, then that's unfortunately the wrong motive. 
but instead we do these things because we are close to God, and we do these things because we want and because we've already been made with, right with God. Right? That, that's kind of the concept here. The mindset has to be obedience and submission to him because of the work he's already done. And we see that perfect example in Jesus because it said that Jesus did the work and the will of God in this process. And I, I would say, too, another motive is to know God better. So if we do these things in order to understand God better, then we're on the right track. So again, just as a bring it back full circle, if we're doing these things to get right with God, it's the wrong motive. If we're doing these because we're already right with God and because we want to get to know him better, that's the motive that we need to be focused on. Third thing, remember that Jesus is coming back. Think about how long ago this scripture was written and how long we've been sitting here waiting for his return. And and I think about even in the early epistles, they were waiting for Jesus to return then. So we've been waiting a long time. We've been waiting a very long time. But verse 13 reminds us that he's sitting and that he's sitting until it's time for him to return, to bring things, all things back under his authority. That's what that that verse is helping us to see. It's like he's waiting for that time where it's his time to return back again, doing and completing the will of God so that he can go ahead and and finish that work completely. And and, and then again, that that redemptive piece has already been done. It's that next piece of that, um, that puzzle. So when he returns, that final fulfillment will come to completion. So we've seen that the final work of, of Christ, that the finished work of Christ perfects us and it sanctifies us. Really think about this idea of Christianity. The whole doctrine, you know, it's almost foundational in a way on this doctrine of grace. And that, and that way of thinking and living, really, if you think about it, is contrary to our culture. If you're a student... You generally, most of us had to work really, really hard, study a lot, of, a lot of hours, write a lot of stuff, research a whole lot of stuff in order to get a good grade. Some people are just really, really, really smart, and they don't have to do as much work as others. And I'm not one of them people. But most of the people have to work really hard to achieve that goal of graduating in their degree. Others, so if you're an employee, sometimes most people have to work really, really hard, be a good employee, be a good coworker. Finish the work that's been assigned to you. Sometimes you have goals that you need to meet. There's so many things that you have to do in order to get to that next level, to get that promotion, to get that raise, whatever that goal of yours might be. So most of us have to do a whole lot to accomplish anything in life. But Christianity says you don't have to do anything. Because Christ already did the work. We don't have to work to get saved, he's already done that work. So it's, it's contrary to what the culture tells us today and how we go out and live our lives on a, on a regular basis because he paid that price, and he, he's the one who perfects us and sanctifies us. So maybe you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you don't know your Bible as well as the next guy. Maybe your prayers aren't as eloquent as somebody else's. Maybe you look around, and you're looking at somebody specific, and like, you know what, that person's got it all together. And I'm just treading water. Here's a question I would ask for you if you have that mindset. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? 
are you further along today than you were when you first became a follower of Jesus? So if you answered yes to those questions and you've had those doubts in your mind previously, then guess what? You're being perfected and sanctified. You're being perfected and sanctified. And the peace that you can find, and the only place you can find that peace is in the person of Jesus and in the work of Jesus. No earthly accomplishment that we get, that we achieve here on earth, will ever be an adequate sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing the work. Thank you, God, that we can have confidence, Father, in the work that your son Jesus did for us. Thank you, God, that you, you, you made this plan from the very beginning. And as difficult it is for, for some of us to, to understand and grasp, I, I know, God, that, that if we continue to, to strive to know you better, that you can help us to understand this better and help us just to have confidence and just kind of be in full surrender mode to help us to have that confidence that we need in you because when we look around this world and we look around at the culture and how things are done and accomplished, it is contrary to what you've told us. And, and frankly, for, for me, I personally, I, I, I would say thank you so much because I know I would never be good enough. I know I would never be able to do enough. I can only rely on you, and I pray, God, that everybody here today watching online can also just say thank you, God, because you've done it all. And I can't, I can't, I would never be able to do enough. So I thank you, Father, for those, for those facts and those truths and that, that understanding that you provided for us. I'm um, just praying, God, for, for this group today, that as we leave today, that you just help us to see that clearly, help, help us to have that confidence that we really need, that we're our, our perfected and being sanctified in you and that we are fully cleansed of our sins if we have put your our faith in your son jesus we thank you for that in his name amen so